Hiya and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. It's me, Damien Barr, with another book of the week. And this one is going straight to the top of your pile. What happens after we die? Now, I know that's a small question and I don't know if you're listening to this in the middle of the night. If you are, then good luck with the philosophical spiral that you're about to go into. But it's a question that many novels ask and it's at the centre of a new novel entitled A Country of Eternal Light by Scottish author Paul Dalgarno. Paul is a writer and journalist, he's former deputy editor of The Conversation and a senior writer and features editor at The Herald newspaper. Now, the title is a quote. I heard it and I was like, feels familiar, it feels familiar, but I couldn't quite place it. And then I realised it's from Frankenstein. And the quote is, what may not be expected in a country of eternal light. So the book is really thoughtful, asks those big existential questions, but it grounds them in one life, the life of a character called Margaret. She has died of cancer and she's now in a liminal state, one of my favourite words, liminal. She's in between places. Unencumbered by space and time, Margaret is free to visit moments from her life, visiting them as a viewer, who has been in the film but maybe not seen it before and of course as we all know with the benefit of hindsight discovers new things about herself and new things about her life so i think the quote what may not be expected in a country of eternal light is a reference to the pursuit of new knowledge in this case of the self as the story progresses margaret projects herself forward in time after the point of her death and she's able to observe her loved ones and she wants to comfort them in their times of grief and I suppose one of the big questions of the book is can any, can that happen? Um, Margaret's end is a new beginning but of what she is not sure. Without a corporeal form, that is a fancy way of saying body, anchoring her to life, her memories slowly begin to unravel and while she does find solace in her visitations, too much of a good thing leaves her spiritually tired and finally wanting to sleep. A Country of Eternal Light is one of those novels that probes very directly at the meaning of life, memory and the power of grief and what might live on after we meet what is an end, but maybe not the end. Here's Paul with a reading. Hello, I'm Paul Dalgarno and I'm chuffed to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new novel, A Country of Eternal Light. The section of the novel I'm going to be reading is from 2015, by which point our narrator, Margaret, has been dead for nearly a year. Margaret herself, I should say, isn't particularly spiritual or a believer in ghosts, and yet she finds herself here and throughout the novel visiting scenes from when she was alive and from after her death. In this case, she finds herself watching her 39-year-old daughter, Rachel, who for some years has lived in Melbourne, Australia, with her wife, Jem, and their two small children, William and Ewan. The young family seem to be out for the day and have just arrived at a car park in a temperate rainforest on the outskirts of Melbourne called the Dandenong Ranges, or just the Dandenongs for short. It's a place of towering gum trees and ferns with occasional sight lines across all of Melbourne, which spreads out to the west. But for now, Margaret and the family are very much surrounded by nature, with Jem and William still sitting in the car and Rachel and Ewan apparently ready to get moving. 2015. Ewan must be four, 
although I'm finding it increasingly challenging to guess how old people are between the ages of 3 and 6. Likewise, between 7 and 10, 11 and 13, 14 and 19, 20 and 92. The broad categories are easier. Baby, child, teen, adult, dead. Rachel is on her haunches in a muddy car park, tying Ewan's orange shoelaces. William and Jem are still in the car and don't seem to be getting out. That's you done, mate, Rachel says to Ewan, picking up a book and a trowel. Let's go. It's winter time going by their clothes. It gets cold in Australia, the southern part at least. That's what Rachel has told me. You don't necessarily think it would. I thought it was warm all the time. Bye, William. Bye, Mummy, Ewan says, waving to both. William ignores him, turns away. Jem waves, blows a kiss. They set off, Rachel and Ewan, she in her black coat, white hoodie and jeans, he in his green cotton trousers, blue jumper and red body warmer. They stroll along a dirt path, past ferns as big as Ewan that may have just metabolised carbon dioxide and released lots of oxygen because I can breathe easier, as if having no lungs wouldn't stop me lunging. The trees... I feel like I know them. Hello, trees. Have I sat in your branches, stroked your roots? The sky through the trees. I know it too, the way it's shaped by the canopy. The mint, mulch and camphor scent. I can smell it. Can I smell? I've been here. It feels that way. Or maybe I know it from the photos Rachel used to send me. The trees are mountain ash, I think, impressively tall with perfect postures. Their skin as smooth as freshly shaved legs, a rough brown sock around their ankles, their arms and lance-like hands too high for holding. Is this part of the Dandenongs? Ewan asks. It's all the Dandenongs, Rachel says. This tree here, he says, pointing. The Dandenongs. And the bushes. The Dandenongs too. Rachel is walking slowly so that Ewan can keep up. There's no rush. Ewan looks up at her back at the trees, at a bird with an ornate tail. What kind of bird was that? Taking off from behind a bush. They leave the path and start trampling across the scrub with purpose, as if they know where they're going. Rachel, at least. Ewan is trudging by her side, the grass up to his knees. Here we are, Rachel says, stopping. They're at a tree that's maybe a eucalypt, maybe not. It's noblier and shorter than the others, either disappointing or distinguished by contrast. There's an opening at its base like a rudimentary church entrance, a fabric butterfly inside on a thin metal stick. In front of that, cradled by the tree's bifurcating roots, are two small bushes with yellow flowers that look like they've been planted there. You're looking a bit worse for wear, Rachel says, getting onto her knees and pulling leaves and weeds from around the bushes. I should have taken the water bottle. We could have given them a drink. They don't look thirsty, Ewan says. Come here, she says, taking his hand and pulling him into her chest, his arms still at his side, his cheeks as red as Rachel's at his age. I love you, mate. And then, looking at the tree, I miss you, Mum. Can't believe it's been nearly a year. I nearly jump out of my skin, have none, but she sees me. She can't see me, surely. Is she talking to the tree? Am I the tree? 
In a forest teeming with model-thin mountain ash, am I another type of tree, dumpier and knottier than the others? Albeit, yes, distinguished precisely for those reasons. My protuberances mean you could claim me if you wanted. I could hug you with my one crooked arm, Ewan, William, the whole family. Okay, let's do this, Rachel says. Mum, we've brought you something to read for your birthday. She takes the trowel from Ewan and breaks the earth just in front of the yellow bushes. It gives way easily, the earth, unstoppering. Am I imagining this? An aromatic concoction of damp moss, wet tree trunk, blue wood, beetroot, tea tree oil, warm grass, butter popcorn, liniment, redwood, citrus, softwood, toadstools, petrichor. Keep digging, Rachel. A distant putrid base note of nondescript organics and carrion flowers. And something metallic too. A steam iron covered in lichen, a three-bar electric fire that's been recently turned off. And behind that, maybe within it, boiled eggs, peeled, split open and abandoned. The book Rachel has with her is Frankenstein. I can see that now. Not a particularly fancy edition, but the one she was reading when she visited me in Aberdeen. The revised 1831 version. I didn't know there were distinct versions until she told me. I wrote inside it at her request, not on the front pages, I'm not Mary Shelley, but the blank ones at the back, between the appendices and blurbs for other Penguin classics. It was bland, really, the message. Thanks for coming, dearie. It means the world to me. I love you. Mum. XX. But it was true. It meant a lot. Can I? Ewan asks. Of course, mate. Go for your life. She takes what looks like a freezer bag from her coat pocket, lays it on the ground. Ewan takes the trowel and starts scraping dirt from the hole. His little fingers, I can smell them, chinking the blade against stones and rock, chopping through fibrous roots that smell like a garden pot and probably belong to me, or me in tree form, the filaments of the local fungal network interrupted temporarily. Look, mummy, a worm, he says. Rachel leans in, as do I, and yes, there's a worm, a beauty, a strand of invertebrate spaghetti wriggling and smelling of skin. Ewan picks it up by the hydrostatic skeleton and kisses it. Rachel pats Ewan's head, sits back and opens the book. She's written, Love you always, on the front inside cover. In looser handwriting, gems, it says, Miss you, Margaret. Below that, it says, Love you, Grandma, William. And below that, Love and happy birthday, Ewan, X. She slides it into the freezer bag like a salmon fillet, draws the ziplock closed, gets back onto her knees. My turn, she says, taking the trowel from Ewan, leaning one hand on the ground for support and scooping with intent, adding quickly to the mound by the side of the hole. A clunk. She's hit another stone, a sizable one, starts digging around it. Ewan looks at the tree and strokes the freezer bag. Is this so Grandma can read it without muddy pages? Yeah, Rachel says. We can't give her a dirty book, can we? No. She pulls the rock out. It's the size of a small kitten, scoops out the loose earth left in its wake. Now, that looks deep enough, doesn't it? 
Ewan nods and passes her the bagged book. Which way should I put it in the hole? She asks, facing up or down. With our names nearest the top, he says, so Grandma knows it's from us, not someone else. She lowers it, a polyethylene and paper casket. Shall I put the rock on top of it? Yeah, Ewan says, animated. We can come back and if the rock's moved, it means Grandma's read it. I'd kiss him if I could, do my teeth trick, my wig trick, whatever he wants. Rachel lays the rock on top of Frankenstein and starts scooping Earth back into the hole. When she's done, Ewan stands on it to make sure it's flat. It's like a treasure, he says. Can we stay a while to see things? What kind of things? Rachel asks, standing. Ewan shrugs. Rachel looks me square in the bark, seemingly at a loss for words. We've buried a book for you, Mum. I don't know why. It was William's idea, but he's in a huff because he wants ice cream and he can't because it's nine in the morning, so... Have I met Grandma in real life? Ewan asks. Just once, a few years ago, Rachel says. She came to visit from Scotland but couldn't stay very long. You don't remember? She's joking. Must be. Mmm, not really, he says. I can't remember anything from when I was a baby. He looks at the tree, says... I love you, Grandma, and I miss you. Then, with the lightness of foot of one who knows dying doesn't matter, he sets off at a run, shouting, Race you back to the car! Thank you, Damien, for having me on the show, and thanks everyone for listening. And thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure to have another Scottish writer here on the podcast. Listeners, that was Paul Dugarno reading from his new novel exclusively for our literary salon. A Country of Eternal Light is published by Polygon, again, one of our favourites, an imprint of Scottish Indie Press Berlin, and it's available now in all good bookshops. So if you enjoy a book that gets you thinking about the big questions, then please do share this episode on your socials. Now, back to big thoughts. Thank you for listening, and join us again soon.